turn through whatever means you have to the Word of God in Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount, just to kind of let you know what uh, we are doing. We're studying this year this, kind of looking at it as a discipleship 101. We said that the Sermon on the Mount was one of the best places to show us if discipleship could be summed up in it's hard to sum it up in easy phrases, but it can be summed up. It's a life of seeing Jesus in all things. It's a life of savoring Jesus. And then it's a life of showing Jesus. And one of the best places we see that is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom. It's about Jesus telling us what life lived looks like under his rule and his reign. And we're studying now that section of the sermon called the Beatitudes, those statements of blessing that in a nutshell speak about and tell us about the heart, the marks, the character of a disciple. We're looking specifically at verses 6 and 7 and those Beatitudes, but to read the context, let me read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John Calvin famously wrote in the opening lines of his great kind of magnum opus, his masterpiece called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, nearly all the knowledge that we possess consists in these two things the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of ourselves. Now that is so vitally important because we focus on knowing God and his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his love, his justice, his greatness, all of his attributes and true. But notice the connection Calvin is making. Calvin says that knowing God in his fullness leads to a self-discovery, a self-awareness, a learning of yourself, which he then takes back full circle and says will lead back to a knowledge of God. So God-knowledge leads to self-knowledge and self-awareness. Now, let's put these Beatitudes together for a second. The first three Beatitudes that we look at gave us a basic knowledge of ourselves. We're bankrupt. We don't have any spiritual, moral resources in and of ourselves. We are what's called poor in spirit. And as a result of that, we mourn. We can't save ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We can't even make ourselves happy. And we still walk around trying to fix other people? Hmm. We ought to think about that for a second. Think about the implications of being poor in spirit. And as a result of that, we mourn. We mourn over the condition of our heart, the condition of our lives, and the condition of the world. Hopefully, hopefully, one of the things we look at when we look at the events in Charleston this week is we weep and we cry and we mourn and we grieve. And that leads to a style of relating That's filled with humility. Jesus called it weakness. And Sinclair Ferguson writes, he says, looking at how all of these Beatitudes tend to work together, he says, driven into ourselves, we now need to be driven out of ourselves. 
Martin Luther said that man's basic problem was that he was turned in upon himself, self-centered. And the work of God in giving us true knowledge of ourselves is not intended to increase this self-centeredness. Rather, it's the prelude to decrease it. For once we have discovered that we have no resources to save ourselves, to help ourselves, we learn to look elsewhere to Christ to meet our needs and also to meet the needs of the world in which we live. And so the movement of the Beatitudes as a whole is basically from this self-centered to a God-centered and then eventually other-centered orientation. So we're moving the first three Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, and meek, then takes us, one commentator called it, to the pivotal blessing. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. And then to this other-centered, they will be blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is Jesus describing? Life in the kingdom. And life in the kingdom, discipleship, discipleship 101, whatever you want to call it, it's basically marked by two things. I'm going to make this as simple as I can. Loving God and loving others. We see that real clearly here. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is essentially loving God. And that leads us outwards. Blessed are the merciful, the tenderhearted, the kind, the forgiving, for they will be shown mercy. Disciples are marked by growth, cultivation. This is what God, in essence, this is the work of sanctification. God is cultivating these things. He's cultivating love of God and love of others in us. Let's look first of all at love of God. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One commentator writes, he says, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who love God and God's will with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because they love God and others, they are willing to check their passions and will in order to do God's will, to further God's justice, to express their longing that God move, that God act, to establish his will and his kingdom. Hunger and thirsting, listen to the words that he's using. These are words of longing. I mentioned last week. Look at how the Old Testament puts it when it says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after you. I doubt too many of us really know what it's like. I mean, we live in America. We are very privileged. We are very fortunate. We are very blessed Do we really know what it's like to hunger and thirst, to really be starving, to the point of our health really being in danger? And yet, look at what Jesus is saying. He says, blessed if you long for this thing. We haven't defined it yet, called righteousness. Blessed if you absolutely seek it, pursue it, yearn for it, hunger for it, thirst for it, with all of your being, not just conceptually, But with every ounce of your being, you hunger and thirst for it, for there are the promises you will be satisfied. Now, what is meant by the righteousness of God? This is very interesting. This is, by the way, a theme that's prevalent in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus mentions it over and over again. In verse 10, that I think Andrew's going to cover next week with you, Jesus says very clearly, some Christians are persecuted because of righteousness. Then when we look at verse 20 in a few weeks, Jesus talks about plainly that our righteousness, whatever that is, has to actually be beyond and exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
He gets to chapter 6 and verse 1. And he says, don't practice your righteousness for the applause of men. But notice in saying this, by all means, practice your righteousness. Just don't do it so others say, yay, you. And then he kind of sums it up in verse 33 of chapter 6. Get this, when he says, seek first. What does it mean to seek first? That means above all, top priority. Before family, before anything, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, the things we tend to fret about, the things we tend to, what do I say, get anxious about. He says, they'll be added to you. God, and that's why so much, if we're honest about our Christian life, so much of our Christian life is we don't understand fully what God is doing. And that's why the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is trust. But what is this righteousness of God that Jesus is talking about? Commentators teach us that righteousness by definition means conformity to a norm. By strict definition, it's conformity to the norm of God. In other words, righteousness is that state of being that is life as God created or designed for it to be. What the Hebrews called shalom. In other words, it's the basic characteristic of the kingdom. And in the Old Testament... Righteousness was associated with God's covenant, with the idea of covenant faithfulness, with, in a nutshell, the idea of God being faithful to himself, God being God. Now, again, Sinclair Ferguson commenting on this verse, specifically in terms of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, he says, we need to understand when we apply it that to hunger and thirst after righteousness for us is multifaceted. It has many dimensions. First of all, it means to long for a right relationship with God, to be right before him. But it also means to live rightly before him in the world and to desire to see right relationships restored in the lives of others. One of the key things we have to understand is that if righteousness is a covenantal word, that means by definition, righteousness is relational because covenant is relational. That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. You can have a contract with somebody and not be in a relationship with them. It's a business deal. You can't be in a covenant with somebody without a relationship. Relationship has stipulations. Relationship has requirements. Relationship has give and take. Relationship always has contradiction. Righteousness, and actually the Hebrews, in the Hebrew language, there's only one word for both the word righteousness and justice. It's the same word. And it means relationships being the way they ought to be. And it's a holistic word. It means right relationships between God and people, spiritual. Right relationships amongst ourselves, social. Right relationships, how we think about ourselves, psychological. And right relationships in the world, societal or cultural. Now, this multifaceted, multidimensional, we need to understand the righteousness we are to hunger and thirst for. First, you have the righteousness that God in Christ provides for us himself. See, the first idea, being right before God, think about it in light of the rest of the Beatitudes. If you're poor in spirit, what are you acknowledging? What are you admitting? You can't be right before God in and of yourself. So to have a right relationship with God is impossible. You don't have the ability to do it in and of yourself. But what Martin Luther called this alien righteousness, that means it's being right before God is given to us as a gift. So we don't conform to God's norm 
God sent Jesus who perfectly conformed to God's norm. And we, if we're a Christian, you know what being a Christian means? It means being in Christ, incorporated into Christ. So God provides for us what we do not have in ourselves. Paul wrote it this way to the Corinthians. He said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, incorporated, enveloped, united to him, we might become the righteousness of God. That is what the Bible calls justification. We lack something, God gives it to us. That's the first facet, the first meaning of grace. We lack being right before God, but in Christ, God provides it for us, counts it as ours. Because we're in Christ, incorporated in him, Jesus' rightness before God becomes our rightness before God. Now, if that was the whole of what Jesus was talking about here, if I said the righteousness of God was one-dimensional, one-faceted, and that was it, where would the application be? It would be believe and receive the righteousness of God. You're justified, and that's it. Have fun. Live a nice life. Wait for the consummation of the kingdom. That's good. But I want you to think about this logically for a second. Who is Jesus speaking to in the sermon? Is he speaking to non-believers? No, he's speaking to his disciples. This is discipleship. He withdrew from the mountains. Yes, the crowds might have overheard. Who came to him? His disciples. That means by definition, they are believers. They are Christians. Jesus is speaking to those who already belong to him. Those that already have that dimension of righteousness, which means Jesus is telling them to hunger and thirst after some of the other dimensions of righteousness. The personal, right living before him, what the Bible calls sanctification, as well as the social, the justice, what commentators call the eschatological righteousness, for God putting the world to rights. We live in the not the already but not yet, and we long for, we are to hunger and thirst for. Why did Jesus, this is the meaning of the petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, do you hunger and thirst for God's will being done on earth as in heaven? That ought to be the longing of our heart. That ought to be some of what we mourn about, the fact that God's will is not God's will is not for people to hate each other. God's will is not for unforgiveness. God's will is not for people at a prayer meeting, at a Bible study, to be shot to death. God's will is not, yes, it's his sovereign will, I understand that, but that's not God's righteousness. I'm not saying there, there's anything that God's not in control of. Of course he's sovereign, he's king. That's why I said one of the things we have to face in the Christian life is God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. I can't promise you full understanding of this. Which is why, again, so much of the application is hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Notice that's a future tense. You're not totally satisfied now. I'll give you a brief personal illustration. I'm dating myself. I remember sitting in a seminar maybe almost 30 years ago, I think, because I was in seminary at the time. And I was given, Larry Crabb came to speak to seminary students at our seminary. Yeah, I'm old, aren't I, Michael? 30 years ago. (laughs) And he came and he gave, and he was speaking about the error, the heresy of the prosperity gospel. 
And he said, in essence, what the error and the heresy of the prosperity gospel was, and he was boiling it down, was, was a demanding spirit demanding heaven now. Basically saying, not only do I long for, do I hunger for, do I thirst. Jesus is saying, you're blessed if you do that. But if I demand, I have to have that now. Satisfaction must come this very minute so that I will even manipulate the scriptures to think that they promise heaven now. They don't. They shall be satisfied. Are you willing to live with the longings of your heart or do you have a demanding spirit? That's part of the application here. That's a difficult application. And part of what Jesus is saying here, because think about this promise. One writer puts it this way, the longing for righteousness issues from a broken heart. This longing for right relationships between us and God spiritually, how we think about ourselves. I don't know about you, but I long for the day. When I'm no longer berated by my sense of performance or guilt or shame or having to measure up or having to be adequate, to think rightly about myself. I'm not talking about a proud self-love. I'm talking about thinking rightly about myself. I long for the day when relationships amongst others are open. There's no fear. There's no insecurity. There's no defensiveness where there could be a genuine depth and honesty, where there's no game playing, no masks. How many masks do we hide behind? All of this is longing for righteousness. It's right relationships in every aspect of life. That's what a disciple does. Next. That's part of how we love God. How does that lead to loving others? Look with me at verse 7. And it says, Blessed are the merciful, hungering and longing and thirsting for righteousness leads us to become merciful people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now think about this, because if you read it a certain way, it can present a kind of problem for us, can it? Because does Jesus mean that we will receive mercy only if we ourselves are merciful? You can misread it that way, can't you? It can be a problem, but we have to ask what is meant. Quoting one commentator, he says, Jesus does not mean, this is very important here, Jesus certainly does not mean that the cause of our receiving mercy will be the fact that we were merciful, as though we had earned God's mercy. Rather, being merciful, tender, kind, is the result of receiving Christ and experiencing the mercy of God. If we are not merciful, what it shows is to that degree, we're not receiving Christ's mercy. So in other words, it's kind of what John commentates or states later in his first letter when he says, we love because he first loved us. You love only to the degree, to the depth that you understand and grasp the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Paul put it this way. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He says, the only thing that counts is faith. Faith in what? Think about it. Faith in Christ, loving, forgiving, granting us righteousness as a gift, and that expresses itself 
So in other words, the language of faith is love, which means to the degree we're not merciful. Do you know what that is? That's not a love issue as much as that's a faith issue. That is an issue of to that degree we're not understanding the love of God towards us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Perhaps one of the best places to illustrate this is the story or the narrative between the woman, Simon the Pharisee, and Jesus in Luke chapter 7. Again, I don't have this printer. If you have Bibles, iPads, whatever, you may want to look at Luke seven forty to 47, because I'm going to refer to this a little bit here. In this, and I think you have in this narrative, it's a great place because what it shows is, first of all, there's Simon. He's a Pharisee. And he's basically hosting a dinner party for Jesus. So before we blast the Pharisees, some of them were interested in really seeking who Jesus was. Did they misunderstand who he was? Absolutely. And Simon's going to be blown away by who Jesus really is. But he's really genuinely seeking after. So he hosts a dinner party and he invites his friend. And in walks this woman. She's not invited. And in fact, the text tells us, and it uses a technical term. It says, for she is a sinner. That's a technical term to mean a woman of the street. In other words, a prostitute. And she comes in, and she's in the presence of Jesus. And she gets utterly overwhelmed in her devotion, in her love, in her passion for Jesus. She begins to weep uncontrollably. She can't control her tears. She is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. She has an alabaster jar of perfume. She breaks it open to anoint Jesus' feet. Then she lets her hair down. And she begins to dry Jesus' feet. She's doing all of these things basically to do what? Hunger and thirst after a right relationship with God. Hunger and thirst after to love God. And of course, Simon's offended by this. He thinks, and of course, Jesus knows his heart, even though Simon's going, I'll just think it, I won't say it. But Jesus sees right through that. He goes, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who this woman is, a sinner. And Jesus then goes about sharing a story to illustrate the differences in them and why she has the ability to love and show mercy. Verse 40, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And I love this part. Simon says, tell me, teacher. And says, two, money, two men owed money to a certain money lender. In other words, they owed money to the same person. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. So let's put it this way. One owed $20, one owed $20 million. Here's the catch. Neither one could pay. So it kind of doesn't matter how much they owe. Neither one has the ability to pay. But what did the money lender do? He canceled the debts of both. And Jesus asked Simon, Simon, which of them do you think would love him more? Now, what is Jesus doing here? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, two people both owe money and they can't pay, so they're going to lose everything. They can't pay their debt. He says, in our time, what do we do? We declare bankruptcy for them. They go into prison. The point is, it doesn't matter if you owe $20 or $20 million. If you don't have the ability to pay, you owe the debt. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He says, if a poison spider bites you in your sleep so you never wake up, you die. And if a lion comes in and mauls and dismembers you and decapitates you, In your sleep, you die. He says one is pretty dead, one is ugly dead. One looks good, they're just asleep, but they're dead from the poison. The other, blood and guts and gore all over the place. But what's the result? They're both dead. 
He goes on, he says, Simon's pretty dead. He's got a nice Pharisee type of life. He looks good, but he's pretty dead. The woman, she's a prostitute. She's ugly dead. One had a respectable life. One did not. But they're both lost. They both need mercy. Simon doesn't get that. His premise is, I'm not that bad. I'm not poor in spirit. Maybe I'm middle class in spirit. I'm okay. Jesus goes after that premise. And he goes after that because look at the end of the text, verse 47. How do we know it? Jesus points out to Simon. And we have this incredible promise where he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. See, the woman, what does she get? She gets an ability to love that she didn't have before. She becomes merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Dr. Keller makes the point, he says, when he says she is forgiven because she loves much, if it wasn't for the second clause, he who's forgiven little loves little, it could be very misleading because it looks like it's saying that the reason I have forgiven her is that she is loving. Again, it's not the cause. It's not meriting anything. He's saying, look at the second clause, and the second clause says, he who's been forgiven little loves little. In other words, what it is really saying is that, again, your love is a response to how deeply you know yourself, you feel yourself, you experience yourself, you believe yourself to be. The reason she has the ability to love now is she knows she has been forgiven. Her eight gazillion debt has been wiped clean and she's debt-free before the Lord. She's mesmerized. She's galvanized. She is thunderstruck. She's overwhelmed. And what does she do? She loves. Your love is a response to the degree that you understand how much you're forgiven. Jesus in the Beatitude is saying, blessed are the merciful. In other words, those who give much mercy, those who are so tender, those who love much are obviously... It's evidence they will receive mercy. It's not as a cause or as a merit. It's evidence that their hearts understand that they have been given grace, that they have been forgiven. See, if you don't see yourself at the same time, and this is one of the biggest both ands in the scripture. If we go one or the other, we're going to get in trouble. If you see yourself only as a terrible sinner, you're going to live in hopelessness and despair, beating yourself up all the time. And if you see yourself only as a completely forgiven sinner, but not that bad of a sinner, kind of a Simon sinner, you're flawed, but you're basically okay, and you're really not in touch with how deeply, especially sin as it's defined. Remember we said righteousness is conformity to a norm. Later in Matthew 5, we're going to get to the norm of God. You want to know what the norm of God is? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that means love perfectly. Which of us loves perfectly, even right now for a second? That's how righteousness is defined. But if you see yourself both at the same time as a sinner who is loved, I don't even know how to describe it, out of the, out of the park. Paul described it this way. He says, For we know that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, height nor depth, the present nor the future. You can almost hear him saying, Can I think up any more superlatives? 
So he, he kind of, i got to end the letter now. So he kind of goes, nor anything else in all creation. It's kind of like, use your imagination. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul is, and Paul is saying, and Jesus is saying, it's only to the degree. See, here's the application. The application, you want a loving church, you want a holy church, you want a transformed church, you study the love of Christ. That's the point. That's how to get from point A to point B. It's not study the love of Christ so that you can go live any way you want. The love of Christ is a power. And it's actually the only power that can change us. It's the only power that can help us grow, be honest, cultivate what being a disciple is all about. Loving God. Loving others. Very simple and yet very difficult at the same time. Let's pray. Lord, may we see ourselves as those who've received mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, after right relationships between us and you that you've provided in Christ, between us and how we think about ourselves, between us and one another, that we'd see community and intimacy and fellowship grow and us in the world. Teach us to hunger and thirst after these things, knowing that will be satisfied in part now, but in full to come. In Jesus' name, amen.